Good morning. It's Monday, November 9th. I'm Duarte Geraldino. And I'm Shamita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. Across the nation, President-elect Joe Biden supporters were in the streets celebrating this weekend. Now the hard work of preparing to govern a divided nation begins. President-elect Biden's team is already working on the transition. Everything from how his administration will combat the coronavirus pandemic to the folks he'll name to be part of his cabinet. And the executive orders he plans to sign. The Washington Post reports Biden is already preparing to undo some of President Trump's policies soon after he's sworn in on January 20th. And they include rejoining the Paris Climate Accord repealing what's become known as Trump's Muslim ban, which restricted citizens of certain Muslim-majority countries from traveling to the U.S., and allowing undocumented immigrants who were brought to the United States as children, also known as Dreamers, to stay in the country. This weekend, he also released a new presidential transition website where he outlines four main priorities, climate change, racial equity, the economic recovery, and at the top of his list, the pandemic. He spoke about that during his acceptance speech on Saturday. That plan will be built on bedrock science. It will be constructed out of compassion, empathy, and concern. I will spare no effort, none, or any commitment to turn around this pandemic. The medical and health publication STAT spoke with several health experts who are advising Biden's team. And they say right away Biden plans to recommit the United States to the WHO, the World Health Organization, and to reach out to Dr. Anthony Fauci. Early this morning, Biden's team announced they'll be creating a COVID-19 advisory board made up of 13 public health experts. One name on the list is Dr. Rick Bright. He's a vaccine expert, and at the start of the pandemic, he had a leading role at the National Institute of Health. Earlier this year, he filed a formal whistleblower complaint against the Department of Health and Human Services, criticizing the Trump administration's handling of the pandemic. And after being sidelined by administration officials, last month, he resigned from his post. Meanwhile, the president-elect is busy vetting potential candidates for cabinet positions. He's focusing first on filling roles involving public health and the economy. Politico spoke with dozens of Biden aides and allies and compiled a list of who's considered to be a likely contender for each position. The list includes names like Susan Rice for State Department, Doug Jones, who just lost his Senate race in Alabama. Biden is considering him for the Justice Department. And to head up defense, Senator Tammy Duckworth or Michelle Flournoy, she's the former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Politico points out Biden is going to have to think about competing ideologies as he shapes his cabinet. He's getting pressure from the progressive wing of his party to pick the most diverse cabinet in history. And in the Senate, there are still several seats where the races haven't been called yet. If the Senate ends up being majority Republican, Biden will need to compromise with them to confirm his choices. Either way, Politico says Biden is expected to take his time and really deliberate. It's not likely that he'll announce cabinet nominations anytime soon. Joe Biden won the election, but President Trump is refusing to concede. 
He also keeps pursuing legal challenges that experts say won't change the outcome. And even though a concession speech is a tradition, not a requirement, no presidential candidate in modern history has ever refused to concede. The Washington Post explains, historically, every losing presidential candidate wrote, telegrammed, or called his opponent to offer congratulations. Now, after television was invented, public concession speeches became common, a way to address the nation, you know, acknowledge defeat and help unify the country. For example, the Post highlights President George H.W. Bush, who, like President Trump, lost his re-election bid. Here's what Bush said when he conceded to then-Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton in 1992. I want the country to know that our entire administration will work closely with his team to ensure the smooth transition of power. President Jimmy Carter also lost re-election after his first term. His opponent was Ronald Reagan. This was 1980. And in his concession speech, Carter expressed disappointment with the results, but he made it clear that he accepted them. The people of the United States have made their choice. And of course, I accept that decision. But I have to admit, not with the same enthusiasm that I accepted the decision four years ago. Then there's Senator John McCain's concession speech after losing to Barack Obama in 2008. McCain not only called for unity, but he told his supporters to honor the importance of the nation electing its first black president. A century ago, President Theodore Roosevelt's invitation of Booker T. Washington to, dis- to dine at the White House was taken as an outrage in many quarters. America today is a world away from the cruel and prideful bigotry of that time. There is no better evidence of this than the election of an African-American to the presidency of the United States. The Washington Post calls Al Gore's concession speech in 2000 the gold standard of all concession speeches. According to the Post, it had all the elements of a great concession speech. It had congratulations, it had acceptance and support, a call to come together, and just a touch of disappointment. Almost a century and a half ago, Senator Stephen Douglas told Abraham Lincoln, who had just defeated him for the presidency, Partisan feeling must yield to patriotism. I'm with you, Mr. President, and God bless you. Well, in that same spirit, I say to President-elect Bush that what remains of partisan rancor must now be put aside, and may God bless his stewardship of this country. Across the country, millions of ballots are still being counted, and poll workers are some of the unsung heroes of this election. Biden specifically shouted them out during his acceptance speech. To all those of you who volunteered and worked the polls in the middle of this pandemic, local elected officials, you deserve a special thanks from the entire nation. A lot of election workers are seasonal. You know, these are paid jobs, but the need for them surges around major election years. And most people who choose to do these jobs say they're doing it for our democracy, to help people exercise their right to vote. But this year, people who worked at polling and ballot processing sites faced entirely new threats, not just the pandemic, but also protesters. That's right, Shemita. We saw demonstrators target the places where votes were being counted, demanding that the count stop or continue depending on the state. And without evidence, 
there were claims of foul play. ABC News found this pattern emerge across a few different states, like in Arizona, where some protesters can be seen carrying what looked like military-style rifles outside of the Maricopa County election site. In Michigan, the state's attorney general asked people to stop making threatening phone calls to these workers. She tweeted that the people who play this role in our electoral process are, quote, kind, hardworking public servants just doing their job. One man, an election worker in the Atlanta area, went into hiding after a video went viral on social media that made it seem like he was crumpling up and throwing away an election ballot. Now, election officials confirmed that what the man can be seen tossing away in that video was actually a list of instructions, not a ballot. But by that time, his personal information had already been posted online, and people were threatening to kill him. A man in Florida wrote an op-ed for the Sun-Sentinel saying he and his fellow election workers have been threatened, harassed, taunted, harangued, and even physically assaulted. He writes, I didn't sign up for this. The next administration will have a lot of firsts. Most notably, Kamala Harris will be the nation's first woman vice president, which also means we'll have our first second gentleman, her husband, Douglas Emhoff. Meanwhile, Dr. Jill Biden will be the first FLOTUS in 231 years to keep her career while also being the first lady of the United States. She took a break from teaching at Northern Virginia Community College to support her husband during his presidential race, but she says... It's time for her to get back to work. By the way, she'll also be the first FLOTUS with a doctorate degree. She's an English professor. You know, she taught during the whole time she was second lady during the Obama administration. And one more first, soon to be the first shelter dog to live in the White House. Major, he's a German shepherd. The Bidens adopted him (laughs) two years ago. And along with Champ, the Bidens' other dog, he'll be moving into the White House residence next year. Now, I don't think White House dogs usually get any kind of official title like POTUS or FLOTUS, but the whole time he's been campaigning, Biden's been saying on social media, champ and major for DOTUS. Of course, that's dogs of the United States. I love it. Do you think they have to salute them? (laughs) (laughs) Sirs? And before we leave you, there's big news on the vaccine front. Pfizer announced this morning its coronavirus vaccine is proving to be more than 90% effective in phase three trials. Now, this is still awaiting peer review, but Pfizer says it's going to be on track to potentially start distributing the vaccine by the end of November. The pharmaceutical giant plans to have 50 million doses ready by the end of the year, with over a billion to come in 2021. You can read all about this developing story in the Apple News app. We'll talk with you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.